0: You will always be our family. Verse six in Galatians chapter four says, "And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of His son into our hearts, crying, "Appa, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God." That's an image of what happens to every single Christian, that we've been adopted, that we are part of God's family, that there is nothing that child could have done, the child didn't work, didn't pay. Didn't perform, but their child was received by the grace of the father and mother. That is a very close image to what happens to people who come to faith in Christ. That we're not just going to heaven. Forget heaven. We are reunited with God. Wherever God is, that's heaven. And so that's the beauty of this gospel. And that's the beauty of Galatians that we are, we've been adopted. And this only comes... Not through any other God, not through any works, but only through Jesus Christ. That Christ has opened that door for your adoption and my adoption. So this is good news. And we say, thank you, Lord. How can you receive me? And so just like adopted children today, Christians, we do not have to work to be accepted by God. That doesn't mean go live recklessly, selfishly. What that means is you and I never have to have insecurity of being part of God's family. We are part of God's family forever. Can you imagine if the parents are like saying, well, now you we have a list of 10 things you need to do to stay in our family. How evil would that be? You're adopted and the girl and her siblings will be part of this family forever. And just, it just breaks our heart. But the tragedy is, in Galatians, that's what was going on. False teachers were coming in and saying, yes, you believe in Jesus, but you're not there yet. You are not in the family yet. You need to do these things. Follow the law. You need to be a Jew first in order to be accepted by God. Now, can you imagine that video again? Somebody comes in and says, oh, I'm so sorry. You misunderstood. You're not a family yet. Here's a document you need to follow. That would be absurd. And that's why Paul is saying, I am astonished, Galatians. Uh, Galatians, how can you fall for such a false gospel, which is no gospel at all? And so verse 8, this is what Apostle Paul writes. Next verse. So can we read it together? Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slave you want to be once more? You want to be a slave, this is how you be a slave. You are a slave because you're trying to earn God's approval and acceptance by following his word. You don't get it, that's not how it works. That's enslaving you. You can't get approval by God through your works. That is the elementary, worthless things. And so Galatians, depending on the law, was foolishness. And so Paul continues on in his teaching, and he says, I have an allegory to tell you. You know what an allegory is, right? Allegory is like uh, the, the tortoise and the hare. Some of you Christians might have read a great book that should be on your Uh, bucket list for books as a Christian, The Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. It's a fictionalized story that symbolically gives meaning and purpose. And Paul says, I want to use Hagar and Sarah, Abraham's has two kids, two sons by them, and I want to speak of it allegorically. That's important because he's not just trying to get a direct message. And so the allegory begins this way. Um, and I, we know it's an allegory because Paul says in t- verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. So allegorically speaking, Paul says, Galatian Christians, you are like Isaac. Who is Isaac? He was a child born of Abraham and Sarah. He's the child of the promise. God fulfilled and brought Isaac miraculously To an old woman and an old man, 100 years old and 90 years old, he was a child of the promise. And allegorically speaking, Galatian Christians, when you are trying to rely on following the law to be accepted by God and trying to prove to God, I'm good enough, and only good people go to heaven, you are like Ishmael, the child of Abraham and his servant, Hagar. So a little backstory for those of you who, who may be like, I'm kind of fuzzy with this. So you got to go back with me to Genesis 15. God goes to Abraham and he says these wonderful blessings. He says to Abraham, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your great reward shall be great. And Abram said, oh, Lord God, Abraham is like around 80s here. What will you give me for I continue to be childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He's not even my bloodline. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and God said, This man shall not be your heir. You will have your very own son. He will be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offerings be. By the way, you know how many galaxies we have? We have millions of galaxies. And within each galaxy, you know how many stars there are? Millions of stars. So a million times to the million power. It's just, yeah. And so God is saying, I'm going to make your childless family explode and you will have more children than you can count. Verse 6 ends with, and he believed the Lord. There's where Abraham's faith comes in. All Abraham did was, say it with me, believed. He didn't have to work it and It was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul used that in Galatians 3. Why was Abraham righteous? Friends, he believed God. So that's the promise of God. And here's the plot. Abraham and Sarah, they sinned though. In the next chapter, some of you who think like Abraham was like this sinless, perfect guy. There was no one that was sinless other than Jesus. Verse Chapter 16. Now Sarai, his wife had borne him no child so she had a female egyptian servant whose name was hagar and sarah said to abraham abram behold now the lord has prevented me from bearing children go into my servant it may be that i shall obtain children by her did you catch that i can't give you a child so i got a great idea even though god just promised you you're going to have many children let's do it our way here's hagar sleep with her And her child will be our child. And Abraham responds, how can I do such an illicit, unlawful thing to violate this marriage? No. Abraham, it says, and Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. He said, sounds like a plan. To that, I always realize, I don't think Abraham was disappointed with that idea. So so after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, His own wife takes another woman and says, sit with her. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, Sarai looked with contempt on her mistress, Hagar. So Sarah's own idea, Abraham's agreement, this is their curse. Sarah says, I got an idea. Why don't we do it this way? And then as Sarai sees her plan fulfilled, she says, what have I done? This is the image of us trying to do God's work and God's blessing our way, even though God has promised Abram a promise. Hold still. Let me do my work. This is us being too smart for our own good, which is really not being smart at all. And verse sixteen, of, uh, verse six of chapter sixteen. Then Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar, and Hagar fled from her. How tragic is that? What did Hagar do wrong? Absolutely nothing. She was a servant. So, thanks God, the plot rises. God's mercy and compassion for Hagar in Genesis sixteen, verse nine through ten. An angel of the Lord said to her, "Return to your mistress and submit to her." What? The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered by multitude. Even though we make mistakes, what does God do? He salvages it. He shows his mercy to even the victims. That it's not something God did, but God is so merciful that he's able to redeem even this. And he's even more gracious because in 21 of Genesis, the Lord visited Sarah And as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken of him, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. So Paul uses this story allegorically. Are you a child of Hagar or are you a child of Sarah, the promise? What's the difference? He had two sons, one by slave, one by a free woman. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. And Paul's making that delineation. One child was born by man-made works and effort. Our ingenuity, our cleverness, our urgency, our stress, our insecurity. The other one was born through the fulfillment of God's promise because God always keeps his promise. So one layer of understanding is this. The child born through human agenda and effort by, by Abraham and Sarah's anxiety, pride, insecurity, and their lack of faith and control was Ishmael. And the other one was purely by God's work, God's grace, God's incredible fulfillment. And that's Isaac. Now, we're kind of getting the picture here. Paul's setting this up brilliantly. Which way do you want to be? You could only be one or two of these. There's no third option. Are you going to be a child who trusts in the promise of God and are birthed and born and have life through grace of God? Or are you going to try to trudge through your life, trying to figure things out and say, you know what, I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, I'm good looking, I can make money, I'll figure this out. That's enslavement. This is freedom. And so, if you rely on yourself and your efforts to be righteous, to be accepted, to be, have meaning in this world, you are like Ishmael. And if you find this freedom and joy that I know who I am, I've been adopted by God, and there is a freedom to excel and perform in this world because I no longer fear rejection. That's the child of the promise. So Paul is brilliant. These false teachers, guys, Paul is saying, they're pushing this wrong idea. You have to get religious. You have to obey the law or God won't accept you. And he's saying to them, do you really want to believe that? And the church should say, no way. Christ is enough for me. So I was thinking about this. And I was like, do people in the world today really live like that in modern church? I believe in Jesus, I grew up, I have faith in him. But they look at the Bible and they're like, I better follow this in order for God to accept me. I don't think so. I don't think as many. I don't think we fall into that. But I think we fall into the curse of born in as a slave of Hagar, like Ishmael, in a different way. And I want to share two ways that I feel, I think, Christians live back to enslavement and working for approval by God. Versus is this. First way, we are so afraid of letting Jesus alone determine our identity. In other words, we have to perform. We have to create our own identity. We are so afraid of letting Jesus determine our identity. And so let me give you an example. Uh, again, for the 50th time, I'll share this with you because I'm excited about it. I, I, I'm part of a baseball team, and I get to be a, a manager for the first time. And this year, something hit me with an aha moment. You know those dads and moms who are like yelling, cursing, fist fighting? You know the coaches that come up and they tackle the umpire and you're like, who are these crazy people? I, I could understand why now. Um, don't laugh. I could understand. So, so, you would think that they're motivated because they want their child to enjoy the game and to win and experience victory. Is that what's happening? You all know. Do you know what's going on? And I see it now as a dad. I see it as a manager and a coach now. For parents and coaches, when our identity is infused with this game through our child in there, our worth, our validation, our identity is wrapped totally in the performance of how these kids perform on the field. And I literally hear it. So you'll hear parents and coaches say, that's not how we practice. That's not what we did. What are you doing? You are representing my being, and you're not showing it. And we're putting all of our gods and idols on the burden and shoulders of these kids. And so when somebody says, your kid stinks, oh, it's World War III. It's like, how dare you? Because you're not violating my child. You're violating my worth. And we go bonkers. So there's a picture I want to show you. Um, This is on some of the fields. Ready? Parents, your kids are watching. Because we forget that there are more important things than our worth being validated by a sports game. And so we're Christians. Of course, I'm. I'm a Christian, but you know I'm struggling. No, you're finding your identity as a Christian in something other than Jesus Christ. That is your sin. And so we're finding meaning and purpose, acceptance, approval by either God or the world to accept me, and we're just thirsty for this. So I know it's just a game. But this is my life. And so this is why people will dive into sports. And why would I go to church? This is my life. And, they, and practices are like Bible studies. The games are like worship. And the pizza party after the game is like the fellowship time. I'm not, I don't want to judge that. This is how our human psyche g- goes all into it. And who is your God? And if you say Jesus Christ, either we're deceiving ourselves Or will probably not say that. And so I realized, oh my goodness, even I feel that. And so this world of human efforts to determine our existence is the sin of enslavement. By my performance, by my accomplishments, I find my identity. Friends, where do you find your identity? Where and in who? Do you look at your children and say, if they succeed, I'm amazing. If they fail, I'm a failure. Go back to the gospel. Your value, your worth has already been settled. Jesus Christ has said, I want you. And so Hagar tries to do it her way and she fails and she realizes I created a mess. And the mess, the antidote to our man-made identity is Christ has to be the only, Christ should be, Christ is the only antidote for your identity and my identity. That's the key to living fearless. To live in the fear of man is horrible. To be a people pleaser is terrible. But to be a God pleaser, there's joy. There's perseverance. So second way we do this, I think because we don't trust God as much as we say we do, we most often reject any kind of authority over us. So for Christians, the way we live out this man-made performance acceptance way is this. We reject authority over us. I'm, I'm just a Christian. All I need is just God and me. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. That sounds good, but that's actually very sinful and proud. So the lesson from Sarah and Hagar is that God had given Abraham a promise, an explicit promise. You trust me, I'm gonna let your descendants be as number as greatly as the scars in the sky, and do it on my terms. But what did Sarah and Abraham say? Thank you, God wonderful promise, we'll do it our way. On my terms. A lot of Christians today, you live your pious Christian life, but on whose terms? Your terms, not God's terms. I'll do family. Don't tell me how to treat my family. Don't tell me how to parent. Don't tell me how to work. No one's going to tell me what to do. I'll go to church and help this church out. But no one should tell me how to do. You know what that sounds like? Fifth graders who won't listen to their teachers, they go to middle school, they don't listen to their teachers and leaders. They go to high school, they don't listen to their parents. Then guess what happens? They go to college and they start listening to everybody. Yes? No. They become parents who don't listen to anybody. Boss, who is he to tell me what to do? I'm going to get a different job. They go to church. Who is that elder and pastor to tell me what to do? They go to a different church. They have to be the boss of their own life. So they're Christians, but they refuse to be under the authority of anyone because all I need is Jesus in my heart. That's it. No, that is not what Jesus teaches. So the way we live this works righteousness out and finding our identity and worth, even though we say I believe in Jesus Christ, is don't anyone dare. Encourage me, bless me, pray for me, but don't you dare hold me accountable because I'm my own boss. I'll figure out life my way. And this is how American Christians are living today. And what breaks God's heart is not that he's angered by that. Because he sees what happens. We shoot ourselves in the foot. We try to out-coach God and out-plan God. And we find out we fail. When you read the Bibles and biographies of godly men and women, what do you always find? I'll tell you what. Common denominator of every godly man and woman in the Bible and history. There is genuine, humble submission to God or to those sent by God. Mary gets approached by Gabriel. I'm sorry. I know you're engaged. I know you're 15. Uh, Got an idea. You're going to give birth to the Savior of the world. What does Mary say? I'm going to go to college. I got plans. Joseph and I, we're going to get hooked up. God, you could shove that plan, give it to someone else. What does Mary say? Let it be so as you say. What does David say? David, you're going to be the king. Saul, he will pass. I made you king. David's like, great. Saul's like, I'm going to kill this kid. David's chasing around and David has a chance to kill Saul. Saul is taking a leak in a cave. David's hiding with his Man behind a rock, he's got a knife. Saul is in the most vulnerable stage a man could ever be. And David cuts off what? His robe. And says, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Because you're the Lord's servant. I trust God's timing. Jesus, what does he say? Lord, I don't want to die. The cross is frightening me. But not as I will, but as you will. I submit to you. If you are a Christian, but you don't know how to submit to authority or leaders, you have a different God. I'm going to say that again. If you are a Christian, I'm not going to measure you by how often you go to church. I'm going to measure you by this. If you have a hard time submitting under authority of even jerks, but they have been placed by God over you, even the President of the United States, and you don't know how to submit, you have a different God. Can I embarrass somebody? Because I just I look at him and I'm just amazed. I'm so blessed by him. So we have a Bill Locke in our church. So Every church has a Bill Locke. But our Bill Locke, I want to share this with you. He is wiser. He is more godly. He has more character than me. And I quiver and I'm humbled every single time he says, this is my pastor to this. And I realize... I just see his heart that he is able to willingly humble himself because he trusts God, not man powers. And he says, this is my pastor. And it makes me quake and say, who am I to think no one has authority over me? So the way we live this gospel out is we say we believe in Jesus, but we refuse to really let other people tell us what to do. We don't know how to be humble. Children, to adult children, to elderly children. We're all children. Do you know how to humble yourself before an authority? This is the way we live like children of slaves by our own word. Uh, Simon Sinek, he had this little clip, and he says this. Do you know how people become Navy SEALs? He asked somebody, how do they qu- become qualified? How do they pass? Who makes it through the selection process to become a Navy SEAL? And he says, I'll tell you who doesn't make it. Someone told Simon. He says, the strong, the the tattooed, the bulky, they don't make it. The The leaders who are cunning and delegate, they don't make it. He says, the people that make it are scrawny. They're skinny. They look like you can't even fight a battle. And they make it. He says, you know why? Because when they're at their lowest point, they're emotionally, physically drained and exhausted. They dig deep into themselves and they find a way, check this out, to help The person next to them. Service. They, the ones that pass through the Navy SEAL process, figure out a way in their lowest points to focus on others, not themselves. That humility. They put themselves under someone's authority. So that they, and Simon Sinek says, service, giving to one another, not their strength or intelligence, but their willingness to be there for each other that's what gets them through guys you and i are not christians because we're smart we figured it out and we've achieved it and this takes us to our final point the good news for of this hagar and sarah story i was just mind blown by tim keller he says this the meaning of this story is this let me read him the prophecy of isaiah looks back to genesis 16 in which god looks down on two women one beautiful and fertile, the other barren and old. And he chooses to save the world through the barren old one. Why? But now Paul turns the tables and comforts the Galatians powerfully. They are the barren woman. If salvation is by works, then only the fertile can have children. Only the morally able and strong and people from good families, the folk with good records can be spiritually fruitful, enjoy the love and joy of God and transform their lives. But that's not the case. He saves the world through an 89-year-old woman who is impossible to have child to make a point this. The gospel is for those who are impossible to achieve it on their own power. That's why it's called grace. That's why it's God's work. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. This is what Jesus is talking about. So as Christians, why would we want to go back to the law? We dive into the grace. We sing of grace, and we relish in it. We forgive. We call God, Abba, Father. And the ones that find abundant life are not the strong, but those who are able to recognize their weakness. So today, do you recognize your inability before God? Good, you're on your way. Today, do you recognize your sinfulness before God? Good, you're on your way. Do you recognize your your constant tripping over, falling over, and I can't do this, God? Good, you're on your way to seeing that Christ can. He did, and he will save. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you, Father, for just this incredible good news. Thank you, Jesus, that it is not by our works and effort, our building of kingdoms and churches or our, our careers that makes us validated or even baseball teams to make us feel like now we're precious, now we got something cooking. But, God, it, it's that we are broken, sinful, and lost with, without you. Jesus, you lived the fullness of the law. You completed, you, you were perfect. And you died and you took our sins. You took our brokenness and you rose again. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the promise that we have through Abraham. That we, by faith we have inherited in Christ this good news and mercy. May that free us to live joyfully. May that desire us to live well now, to follow the law, not because of approval, but because of gratitude and joy to be a blessing and to point the world to you. Lord, may you seal in our hearts, everyone listening here, your message and your good news and allow us to rise in faith as we celebrate and praise Jesus. And we say thank you for your amazing grace. It is in your name we pray and we close with the prayer that you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, and deliver us from our debtors, and deliver us from temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.